Hi, well, welcome everybody to Green Left Radio on Community Radio 3CR um, at 8.55 on the dial. It's a bit unusual today, isn't it, Sue, because two of the regulars for Green Left, the wonderful Jacob and... uh, and Chloe, Chloe yeah. have all been struck down by COVID, and people have uh, thought that COVID's over. That's right. That's right. There's still a lot, um, a lot of COVID around the traps, and actually, especially in the Moreland area. Um, my name's Sue, and I'm not normally the one who um, hosts the Green Left program. Um, the, although Leo will be arriving shortly, he's coming in from Dandenong um, to help with um, co-hosting the show. But yeah, that's right. There's quite a lot um, going on in terms of COVID, and uh, we've had to do a lot of rearranging with Jacob and Chloe both. Um, Stalwarts they are. Yeah. And of course, 3CR, the 3CR family has gathered it up and that's why I'm on panel and my name's Annie. Yeah, thanks Annie and also there'll be another person taking over from Annie when you start doing some work on the construction gang program, getting yeah. it to air. Um, so thanks very much to everybody at 3CR for helping us um, get the show to air on f- this Friday. So what are the headlines? Well, one of the headline articles we wanted to talk about today is the situation of Kumanjai Walker and the police uh, officer who killed him in uh, 2019, uh, Zachary Rolfe, being let off all, not just the murder charge, but all charges in a shock decision a few days ago. Well, this really underlines the fact that uh, police procedures are actually at such a, a degree of violence against First Nations people that it's considered to be uh, legal. Well, that's right. And one thing which Kumanjai Walker's family has said and the Walpuri elders are saying is that up until the Howard's um, Northern Territory intervention in 2007, Police didn't carry guns in the in the remote Aboriginal communities in Northern Territory, and they're calling for all guns uh, for police to stop carrying guns in Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory, um, and for situations where maybe someone goes a bit um, crazy or whatever, you know, loses a plot, um, that elders be called on to help calm the situation down so that you don't have people killed by the police. And this young man died, um, I think it was on the same day as a a funeral of a senior elder in the community. Um, And so people came out of a grieving process and went straight back into a grieving process. 
um, when Kumanjai was killed. And the, and Zachary Rolf, the police officer, he didn't only get off in the manslaughter charge. He got also got off on the um, well, often he got off on the murder charge, got off on the manslaughter charge, but also got off on the other charge, which was violent act I causing know. death. Like that's stunning yeah, that yeah. even that he um, got let off on. It was an all-white jury. I mean, I'm I'm sure that's got something to do with it. Um, but it's just very strange because it's the the whole procedural approach. They come very early in the morning. The person's asleep. The whole idea that this person could have actually uh, been a threat. Yeah, it's just absolutely extraordinary. It, it reminds me of David Gandhi. You remember many, yeah, many, many yeah, years ago? Yeah, no, it does. And then now the family's saying the next step where they want to fight is in the coroner's process because after this young man had been shot, um, he was taken uh, to the police station. Because he didn't die immediately. No, that's right. He was taken to the police station and um, he was um, – the family weren't allowed into the police station to see how he was, to say farewell, their it's goodbyes. Shocking, isn't it? He would have died alone, yeah. scared. Um, the police wouldn't allow the family in to the police station when he was dying. Um, I don't know if he could have been saved. His life could have been saved at that point if um, medical services had been called. I don't even know if medical services were called. But the family was left outside for hours while he lay dying inside. And it's just stunning to know that the situation... You know, prior to 2007 is that police didn't carry guns in these communities and suddenly they started carrying guns, which has led to a, a, an escalation of violence in these communities. So the family is calling for action, aren't they? They're calling for action, the removal of all guns from the communities and I think around the country we should support and call on that demand because normally the previously what would have happened is that elders would have been called on to resolve any dispute. It's actually quite uh, devastating. Um, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the unfair nature of a racist, frankly, nature of the uh, health system in Australia and in relation to um, First Nations people. It was the... Uh, last night there was a free a screening of uh, of a film on at Fed Square, which is called um, Heartfelt, and it's about rheumatic uh, heart failure that is affecting Indigenous peoples in the um, remote communities. This is a health condition that uh, all developing nations, except Australia, has actually eradicated. Um, that, that this is another serious issue. And I was talking to somebody about this and it said, frankly, this is racist. Absolutely. <laughs> In fact, there was a Four Corners program a couple of last week, I think it was. It's absolutely disgusting. The Dumaji Hospital, I don't know how it can call itself a hospital. Um, this young woman who was diagnosed with severe um, with this severe condition, was uh, attended an emergency department 12 times. 
um, the doctor who'd seen her... Sent home with Panadol. Yeah, she was sent home with Panadol, handed out through um, a wire in a a um, security door. Because they're such threatening people. It's just absolutely disgusting. It's like... it's. You would think it's unbelievable. I mean, this is like the yeah. Anyway, and, anyway words, words fail me about that situation. It's just so tragic and preventable and racist and, and frankly racist. Yeah, we will back in two shakes of a lamb's tail. A system based on profits, inequality, and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let-it-rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in Parliament and on the streets, and all the while, our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working-class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win. Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter. Hi, back again, and uh, welcome to Leo, our, my co-presenter for today. Thanks, Sue. Thanks for having me. Um, I thought I might uh, go into another news story, which is on Green Left, um, which is about the floods in Lismore, in northern New South Wales and Queensland. Actually, the floods were really widespread. Um, some of the people who died in the floods... You know, it covered such a wide area. There was someone who died in Warwick um, in um, southeast Queensland. Um, It's very shocking, isn't it? It was sort of very widespread. And in Grantham, this was almost a reliving of the disaster in 2011. But the article I wanted to get to is an article in the Green Left website called Corporate Philanthropy or Real Disaster Relief. And it's talking about... You know, a situation where basically people had to rescue themselves. Um, you know, the um, Australian government was able to get, you know, massive plane loads of military equipment off to Ukraine within a few days. Actually, there but was um, also uh, footage of Sri Lanka sending um, military helicopters to help our flood relief people. Well, yeah, well, I hadn't seen that, but that's quite <laughs> stunning. Um, and so people had to help themselves. And then meanwhile, and the government's sort of saying, talking talking up people's resilience, helping yourself, yeah. blah, 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 um, i.e. not helping people. And then meanwhile, there are these companies being celebrated for, you know, giving paltry donations to the Red Cross flood appeal, you know, Harvey Norman, Coles, etc., and you think, why don't these businesses pay their taxes? Uh, because in reality, um, you know, they're just, it's a marketing ploy. And with Coles, they're also giving a certain amount on the basis of, oh, we'll match people's, you know, for every dollar that people give to the flood relief, we'll give a dollar. Well, actually, 
these companies pay so little in tax and, you know, that, like, it's, you know, they shouldn't be celebrated for this because it's ordinary people who've been crowdfunding to clean up, you know, clean up their houses, clean up public infrastructure, etc. I mean, even the local councils in Lismore. The well, lo- you know, it's an example of uh, the air we breathe is, uh, is uh, corporate and uh, money is more important than life. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, that's exactly how how it you realise sort of Sue that um, yeah. nothing appears except on a place like Three CR that hasn't been paid for. Yeah, everything's an ad. Yeah, I know that's very cynical, but being my past life as a promotional person, everything's an ad. Well, that's how, that's how they sort of do it, and it's um, anyway. I just think this corporate philanthropy, um, so called. Um, is really a way of allowing the government to get away with that proper disaster preparedness. Well, not being a government. Yeah, not being a government. We don't need a government because corporations and free enterprise is going is the air we breathe. <laughs> that's well, that's right. That's exactly how the, how they uh, how they see it, and um, we just need um, these. Actually, it's to called being taxes. a moron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we just need these companies to actually pay up their taxes and pay a decent whack of tax because these companies are all the ones that made... What do you think, Leo? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the floods have been shocking and Sue, you know, being from Queensland yourselves, I'm sure you can, you know, underline um, just how rare these events are, but they are becoming more frequent. But just to take you up on that point of disaster relief and management... Um, what has been interesting is that really um, visible presence um, of the army and the ADF, and this always irks me when it comes to disaster preparedness. And there was quite a good article in the conversation last year when um, the vaccine rollout first began um, to be rolled out, and the um, head of the federal government's sort of program in this was um, a former military general. And I think uh, we've seen um, in sort of the past decade um, a sort of rehabilitation and really prominent role that the ADF has played in these sort of disaster roles, not just in the vaccine rollout when we had the bushfires a couple of years ago, floods now. Yeah, the, and the, yeah making the um, the answer is the big man in the in the uh, uniform. Yeah, exactly. And you the know past what? few um, governors general as well have been yeah, yeah. from a military occupation. And I think it's unsurprising in a way because it is about militarism on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's also just the fact that there really aren't any other public services that are left in the federal government's remit <laughs> that haven't been privatised. The military right. is one of the few, and, you know, you can't really privatise the military. And well, that's the know, situation we try. get to. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it reminds me of something. My uh, There's an old uh, music hall joke my uh, grandfather used to say about uh, two people sitting in a car when it was a very early uh, device, and it breaks down, and one of them turns over to the other one's face, you know, you you can fix it. You've got the motoring cap on. <laughs> Angry at paying the heavy price for COVID? How about healthy, safe conditions at work? More health care. Less police powers. A safe world with free vaccines for everyone. Rally Saturday, the 19th of March. Fight for public health and workplace safety. State Library, 12 o'clock noon. This rally was initiated by Workers' Solidarity 
and rally organisers are 3CR supporters. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Hi, well, we've got uh, welcome back to Green Left Radio on Community Radio 3CR at 855 in the dial. Um, so we've got online Isaac Nellist, who's a writer for Green Left. Um, Sorry, I think my phone was on mute there for a second. <laughs> How are you going? Hi, Isaac. How's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. I was going to say I pointed, I did all the buttons. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay, Annie. Um, I'm a bit of a ring in today, Isaac. Um, it's normally uh, Jacob and Chloe here, but. Um, yep. Both have come down sick. Um, so we've got Leo and myself in the studio today, and we wanted to have a chat to you about the article you've written, People Not Profit, Young People Demand Action on the Climate Emergency. And yeah. you write in the article uh, about climate change representing the biggest existential threat to humanity, and yet there's little or no action from governments. I'm wondering if you could comment on what your, um, you know, comment in particular about the government's response to the floods in northern New South Wales and Queensland, which have been really extensive. Yeah, of course. So, like, as everyone's probably heard about the floods going on um, over the last couple of weeks uh, along the east coast, particularly around Lismore, and um, affecting Brisbane and a bunch of areas along northern New South Wales and Queensland. Um, Those events have been caused by these intense, crazy storms that have been going on that have been really intensified by climate change. And that's what we've been warned about for decades by climate scientists is that climate change is going to kind of stir up, um, rise the ocean temperatures and create more intense um, storms and weather events. We already saw in 2019-2020 uh, black summer bushfires that um, we can have these intense heat events as well that will cause crazy bushfires that will that kind of devastated a lot of the country. Um, and now we're seeing the, the other side of that is these floods. Um, the other, it's not particular, it's not only in Australia that these events are happening. We had crazy floods in Europe uh, last year um, that like destroyed a lot of um, small towns and uh, affected a lot of cities as well and also um, massive heat waves and fires in North America. So it's a, something happening all around the world and all around the world governments aren't doing enough. But um, 
in Australia in particular, uh, there was a bit of a lack of a reaction from the government to these floods. Uh, it took a long time before it was declared as uh, an emergency. Um, and they've kind of failed to respond quick enough to actually like make a big enough difference in helping residents affected by this um, respond. So uh, now we've got the ADF, the Australian Defence Force, has been sent out to help and a bunch of other services. Um, but it's almost like too little, too late. It's, we can't just keep having this like reactive response where we wait until something gets really bad and then do something about it. What's going to be really important going forward with future events like this is to have plans in place beforehand and actually make sure that things, the like structures are, and systems are ready to do, cope with the increased disasters because that's what we're going to see with climate change. And also, um, we should be dealing with the uh, the cause of these disasters, which is climate change. So we need um, to actually start taking serious action um, to slow the, the effects of climate change rather than letting um, the kind of coal and mining companies uh, dictate what Australia's kind of role is in the climate sphere. Thanks, Isaac. Leo here. Um, we just talked... Um now and a little bit early in the program as well about the inadequacy of the government response. Um, but I'm wondering if you could um, give some commentary um, about um, the federal opposition, the Labor Party, and their response um, to the floods, um, the broader sort of climate emergency, and especially um, leading up to the next federal election, um, how that's shaping up to be in terms of um, climate politics. Yeah, so I think a lot of people are aware of how um, terrible the coalition is with uh, climate policy. Um, but I think people kind of take for granted that, oh, Labor, surely they'll be doing something about it. And Labor's slightly, slight improvement on the coalition in terms of climate, but they are still not doing enough. Um, Labor's climate targets are committing to net zero by 2050, but uh, as a lot of science, climate scientists have pointed out that this is uh, what, like too little, too late. Um, it's almost like a kind of climate denialism to say that to, to say that this will be enough to deal with the crisis. By the time we get to 2050, we could already be seeing even more intense weather events, the uh, lack of access to food, um, and other like worst-case scenarios. Um, Labor's kind of uh, been supporting. Uh, the the kind of gas recovery that Scott Morrison um, promoted in response to COVID, um, which is means expanding like the mining of gas across uh, New South Wales and and across um, other states, and they've also been supporting the like expansion of um, coal mines in in Queensland. <coughs> the uh, Labor Premier has um, courted deals with Adani. Um, who are kind of serial climate criminals um, and have just been devastating for the environment. And uh, Labor co- could be doing a whole lot more um, uh, kind of in response to the, the coalition, but they've kind of uh, stepped in line with them, kind of agreeing on the, on the broad points um, and not really committing to any meaningful action. And some people say, oh, maybe Labor will... Uh, come out with this great plan once they're elected, but that's really not enough because 
we kind of need to be fighting for these changes now. We can't really wait. We don't have much time in, in order to deal with this crisis. So uh, it's, it's disappointing to see Labor take such a back step. Um, even recently, Anthony Albanese, uh, Labor leader, um, came out uh, to a business uh, conference and said he's going to be more like John Howard than, um, than Bill Shorten. And so that's kind of signaling that he's going to be act more, as more of a conservative uh, leader than many people would want. Um, and that's really disappointing to see. So, yeah, uh, hopefully, like, Labor can actually have a think and, and change their policy, but the, the, uh, the other alternative is to seriously look at um, what other parties are are doing and um, consider changing your vote to, to them. So, yeah. Um, Isaac, you talk a bit in the article about um, Australia's formation as a settler colonial state and dispossession of Aboriginal people providing a context to Australia's failures to deal with climate. Do you want to expand on that point a little bit? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so Australia is a, a settler colonial state, which means um, that it was invaded when the British came uh, 200 years ago. Um, and Aboriginal people have been on this continent for 60,000 years or more um, and somehow managed to sustainably... Uh, manage the the land and the climate and and not cause this destruction that we've managed to do in the last 200 years um and at the same time the the effects of the of climate change and destruction of the land is also heavily felt by first nations people more than um the average like white australians um because uh disadvantaged communities are always kind of the first to be impacted by uh, the devastating weather events and um, uh, the, uh, unequal access to resources and food and things like that. Um, one of the most important things we can do in dealing with climate change is to um, take on board um, Aboriginal land practice and water management systems because uh, they have this this, this connection um, between how the land is managed and how it's going to be impacted by climate. So we always think about climate solutions as, oh, it's all about emissions going into the air. There's a whole lot we can do uh, on the land and with uh, water that will make a big difference. The other thing is a lot of the uh, coal mines and gas fields that are being proposed by the, the government are on... Um, Aboriginal land, like that, is uh, owned by Aboriginal people, and their their land rights are being kind of swept aside for the sake of these uh, mines and um, gas fields. So a lot of the resistance to these new um, kind of climate dis- disasters opening up is coming from tradi- traditional owners and First Nations people who see that their land is going to be taken and. Um, dug up and destroyed and um, even more so than it already has been across the country. So not only are First Nations people really impacted by climate change, but they're also a key part of the solution. And I think any serious climate action has got to front and centre First Nations people in the, in the response.
Uh, Isaac, my, um, I'm Annie. Um, it's interesting that uh, I know that people would be uh, horrified at the idea of uh, talking about artesian basins when we've got mm. massive floods. But Santos is uh, doing something like 180 drills into the artesian basin on First Nations land uh, for, for, for gas, basically. I mean, yeah. do, do Australians actually want to uh, die of thirst? Yeah, well, it's, sometimes it sounds like it, but um, the, the thing is that Australians have been kind of sold this lie by the government that we need gas to uh, go forward into the future for energy so we, could, we can sacrifice all these other things to ensure that we have this kind of secure access to energy. But the real solution to that is, is renewable energy, which is um, far less destructive on the environment um, in terms of setting it up and also is has the zero emissions um, once it's going and is kind of definitely the more is the solution in the future. Um, so renewables are kind of uh, a much a much more, uh, uh, I guess, friendly into the environment in a number of ways, not just, yeah, the output of emissions, but also the destruction of the land where they actually uh, set up. Um, so that could be an energy solution going forward. The other thing is, like, uh, there's no point risking our access to water um, when when uh, we don't need to, um, and if it's especially when it's going to be impacting uh, the land of um, traditional owners. Um, so yeah, it's really it's it's based on this kind of false uh, kind of thing set up by the the government to to try and force try and convince like everyday Australians that we need would you say that it's that that thing that they say false scarcity no yeah 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 that's a good way of putting it it's it's we we they say we we can't get enough energy unless we do this and people say oh okay I guess I can't argue with that I'll cut off my arm yeah yeah exactly (laughs) that's terrible um I was just turning away from Australia a little bit um and looking towards the conflict um, in the Ukraine, why is it um, important for climate activists to um, reject war in all its forms? And what's the sort of connection there between militarism, war, um, and climate change? Yeah, well, there's a whole whole bunch of reasons. But I guess the, the first uh, major one would be um, that war is incredibly destructive for the environment. Um, I guess not only in the physical effects of like bombs and fighting, literally destroying areas, um, but also in terms of the emissions output by militaries, um, the uh, risk of, in particular in, in Ukraine, there's um, nuclear reactors that are at risk, um, and if, if any of those take some serious damage, that could like have really devastating effects for the climate. Um, and particularly around Europe, um, and also the incredible amount of money that is spent on um, weapons and uh, keeping kind of military systems going. And, I mean, even a bunch of countries in response to uh, Russia's invasion, like Germany, has pledged to double its spending on um, military which is just not what we need at all in um, 
in the context of the climate emergency uh, where we're kind of really need desperately this change um, and we need the kind of uh, the, the money for it and we need to uh, avoid this distraction of of, uh, of war that isn't, isn't going to help anybody. Um, a, a great response has been from Fridays for Future uh, in the Ukraine. So Fridays for Future is an international group that organizes a lot of the um, school strikes for climate. But the, the Ukraine uh, branch has uh, organized these massive um, anti-war protests across Europe um, which, with like hundreds of thousands of people turning up um, kind of with the understanding that uh, war is this incredible, incredibly destructive thing um, that will set back climate action um, for even more so than it already has been. Um, it's really interesting to see how uh, governments will respond to a war, uh, which is, I guess, one form of crisis with this kind of energy and vigor of we need to do something that's like we can spend as much money as we want to like make sure that we have like the right military capabilities and things like that. But when there's this impending kind of climate crisis coming, there's like kind of nothing like, oh, we'll maybe allocate a little bit, a few more dollars there, a few more dollars there and not really actually invest in any significant change. Um, part of the response to the Russian, Russian invasion has been Let's um, seize assets of these Russian oligarchs, which is like interesting because um, we don't consider seizing the assets of Australia's billionaire oligarchs who are kind of destroying the climate. Um, so uh, that kind of throws up these questions of like, why is one crisis more important than another? Um, and it goes to show that there's kind of geopolitical uh, emphasis put on some things and not on others. Maybe the, the war in Ukraine is considered more of a threat to the uh, kind of ruling uh, status quo than um, letting a few hundred thousand poor people die from climate-related disasters. So uh, it's really important that for climate activists to be uh, anti-war um, for all those reasons. And I think it's important to be anti-war in general, uh, regardless of the climate. So uh, it just really adds the, um, to the uh, importance of the anti-war movements, and it's great to see that the anti-war and climate movements can be um, working together to achieve some significant change. Well, thanks for that, Isaac. I think the um, that's a very important point that you're raising, and it's actually really good that Fridays for Future has taken this up because in recent history the climate movement and environmental movement has been pretty silent on militarism, like whether it was the Iraq war, the war in Yemen, Bashar al-Assad's attack on the people in Syria or um, Turkey and Russia's attack on the Kurdish people or, um, you know, the war in Afghanistan. Um, the climate movement has been pretty silent. And, you know, as well as the points you make, there, there's massive mining involved in, um, you know, taking the resources out of the earth to create all of this military weaponry, some of which is uranium-tipped, so has, yeah. is actually radioactive as well, just standard bombs are 
you know, some of them can be radioactive in the sense of the uranium tips, and, mm. and that then just gets destroyed. Like all of these, there's an environmental cost to the, um, you know, the um, raping of the earth to create these bombs and military equipment. And I remember in the Iraq war, they set all the oil wells on fire for months and months and months and months. And mm. there was sort of no climate response um, to any of that. So it is really positive that um, Fridays for Future um, is leading these anti-war protests and drawing the links there. Yeah. That, and yeah, sorry, you keep, other, keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and also the I guess the fact that the I think the American military is like one of the biggest emitters in the world. I think yeah. um, more than some entire countries. So yeah, it's a very I think it's great that there's this uh, connection between those movements now, or that's starting to form at least. Well, thanks very much for that, Isaac. Um, that's all we've got time for, and look forward to reading many more of your articles in Green Left. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. No worries, thank you. Thank you. And some people. I'm so close to something beautiful. I think that it's your love. I've been extra dutiful because it's what I'm dreaming of. Now I feel so wild inside. I don't know what to do. I'm so close to something beautiful And what's beautiful is you I'm so close to getting what I want What I want is you I've waited such a long, long time Now it's coming Welcome back to 3CR on 855 AM. You're listening to Green Left Radio um, this Friday morning. And before we get into our next segment, um, I thought I'd give a quick promotion to um, the newspaper that bears our name 
um, Green Left, and um, you might be a long-time listener of the show or just tuning in, um, but you might not um, know much about the work that Green Left does. And um, it is important work because Green Left is an independent, um, community-minded media project um, similar to 3CR itself. It's um, funded entirely um, by contributors and subscribers, um, and it takes the view that news um, shouldn't just be for profit but should really empower um, voices that aren't heard in the mainstream media, whether that's um, voices from the climate movements, um, from workers and trade unions, and from all sorts of different struggles happening, not just here in Australia and but also internationally. So um, if you like the work that Green Left does um, on radio, um, you might want to subscribe and get the physical newspaper form, um, which you can do so for uh, $5 a month. Um, and there are all sorts of different options, which you can find out on greenleft.org.au. That's greenleft.org.au. Um, but going back into um, the main program, uh, we'll focus on a couple uh, more stories um, featured in Green Left recently. Um, and the first one concerns um, the rise in spending um, for the German military that Isaac actually touched towards the end of our interview with him there. Um, the other week, uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced that Germany would be increasing um, its defence spending to above 2% of the GDP. Um, now, it's been quite long-standing um, German public policy position that this would not happen um, and this has been subject to um, sort of annoyance and pressure from NATO, especially um, the US, but in the wake of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, um, uh, Germany has announced this measure and I think it underlines the way in which um, Solutions um, to this conflict um, continue to be driven um, by militarism and increase um, in spending. And it really, really lays bare just how few things have changed since the um, onset of the Cold War. Um, you know, ever since the 1990s, we've seen um, ramping up of tensions um, with the East and there continues to be this almost permanent security um, situation in Europe. And now, you know, Russia's aggression and invasion of the Ukraine has um, obviously put a lot of European um, states on edge, especially the sort of nearer neighbours in the Baltics. Um, but I think it does underline the need um, to reduce tensions and for security arrangements that benefit um, all of Europe states rather than just serving the um, uh, geopolitical interests um, of Western Europe and the Atlantic. Um, Sue, any thoughts on that? Well, one thing I guess I was thinking was that the conflict in Ukraine is being used as an excuse by various European governments to try and militarise Europe. And in fact, probably the French government would love to see a European standing army. Um, 
you know, as well as Germany using this uh, the Ukraine war as an excuse to increase military spending, as the Australian government is as well. Um, countries like Sweden have now abandoned its neutral stance. Uh, countries like Finland, which are not part of NATO, are also sending arms. So I think ruling classes in various European countries are trying to use the war in Ukraine for their own purposes to try and militarise as much as they possibly can and um, to overturn any um, restrictions on militarisation within Europe. Um, So that's absolutely what they're doing. It's fascinating the uh, very uh, sort of fascist history of many of those states as well. I mean... It sort of oozes from the ground, doesn't it? A bit. Well, yes, it is. I mean, you know, the fascists in Germany did go somewhere and they went to ranger countries. Um, some even came to Australia and some uh, went to Argentina and, and so forth, uh, as well as to different parts of Europe. And, and so, yeah, I mean, some of those became... You know, mainstream figures within various normalized. European, they've become normalized. Yeah, become normalized. Not to mention new, new sort of uh, neo-Nazi kind of figures. But even beyond the beyond the Nazis or neo-Nazis, just the mainstream establishment right is likes to take advantage of every conflict like this to push things in a right-wing direction. Yeah, very nasty sort of direction. Yeah, and so that really, um, you know, uh, there were interviews with Ukrainians in the lead-up to the Russian invasion, which, you know, the Russian invasion has zero justification. It's, um, you know, I mean... Who, who benefits out of war? Certainly not working class people, whether you, Ukrainian working class or Russian working class, you don't benefit out of war. It's ruling class people who benefit from war. And Putin is ruling class person. Um, just, you know, like the Zelensky government is a ruling class government. And, you know, that's who benefits from war. And these European governments are trying to push the militarization and it's working-class people who will suffer from that. A system based on profits, inequality and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let-it-rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in Parliament and on the streets, and all the while... Our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win. Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter. Hello and welcome back to 3CR. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, And a big welcome to William Briggs, a regular um, contributor to Green Left, both radio 
and um, in the paper form. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning, William. Absolute pleasure. Um, now, this morning we're going to talk about um, uh, the sort of Ukraine um, conflict that we've been focusing with you over the last sort of couple of weeks, um, but also just the broader sort of trend of militarism and um, how that's sort of shaping geopolitics in this unipolar world that always seems to be um, beset um, by conflict. Uh, but I guess to start off with recently, and this focuses really on your article, um, uh, in a speech to the Lowell Institute, um, Scott Morrison described um, quite an arc of autocracy that challenges our freedoms um, um, and which you know we as liberal democracies must be ready to fight for. Now, this sort of parallels, um, you know, this sort of um, rhetoric that's been prominent from the West for quite some time. You know, George Bush's um, axis of evil and this sort of existential fight to protect liberal democracy. Now, how do you analyse this latest sort of um, uh, these latest comments by Scott Morrison and um, how does it all tie into um, the militarism that he's trying to promote? Mm, thanks very much. And it is a, you must admit, it is a beautiful expression, the arc of autocracy, and it does. Almost whenever the going gets really tough, our leaders, whether they be uh, American, British or Australian, aim for the statesman-like Churchillian statement. But this one is interesting, and it sort of it implies that there is a <clears throat> some sort of threat, a threat to us here, and that we are in danger from some sort of... Um, hideous cabal that's going to come and sweep across. And to begin with, there, there is a threat. I would absolutely categorically state that there is a threat, but it isn't from Russia, and certainly not from Russia. In fact, we've been looking for one ever since the Crimean War, 19th century, the little gun emplacement put up in uh, harbours all over the country ready for the Russians to come. And we've been waiting for them pathetically ever since, and they never quite got here. And they're not coming this time either. Uh, so there's no... No threat from, from Russia. There's no threat from China, nor has there ever been, nor from some mystical arc of autocracy. But the threat that we do face is one that is being promoted by the Morrison and the Albanese in this country, the threat that, of, a, of a capitalism that is in absolute deep crisis. That is where freedoms are being threatened. Um, and if you just... Anybody, just look around just for five minutes and you'll see the evidence. People are really struggling. Poverty, insecurity is everywhere. And deeply concerning for the ruling class is that faith in the actual electoral system is at an all-time low. And that is where the threat, not so much to us, but to them, lies. Um, because governments, if they're going to survive in any form, need a sense of legitimacy to do so. Um, there's a social contract. We give you the right to govern us. You give us some tangible thing in return. Um, but that is clearly not happening. That tangible thing of a reasonably secure life uh, for ourselves and our children's lives might be slightly better than our own. Things that we built our, our whole lifestyles around for 100 or 200 years has just been shattered. Um, and whenever economic times become tough, governments always 
and Australia in particular here, falls back on fear, fear of the other, fear of the unknown. Um, mostly in our case China and almost inevitably communism. And it just occasionally you get that absolute beautiful Quinella, China and communism in the same sentence. And that's what's happening here. And even one famous occasion, Indonesia, was going to be our great existential threat. And threats are always wheeled out whenever there is a threat to economic stability. Now, um, as I say, people are struggling and economic times are bad and threats are always found, drumbeat, become louder. I can remember a time not that long ago, not that many decades ago, I suppose when issues like nationalism, like uh, national symbolism, like Anzac Day and all that stuff that went with it, had receded very much into the background. The, the state didn't need it because economic times were good. Now, God only knows what the hype's going to be like this Anzac Day when we are drumming into our kids the fact that Australian soldiers in various wars from Gallipoli on have done this to save our particular freedom. Now, we've never had any threat in any external form to this country since the end of World War II. And yet, our government, previous governments and successive governments have marched us off to fight in, in US interests, have passed us off as being in our interest, our national interest. And our leaders, when they're putting on those clothes of of uh, statesmanship will always talk to doing this to preserve and protect our national interests. So, now, what is even more appalling in all this is the overlap of militarism that gets, gets overlaid over the whole thing. And it's been passed off as industry policy. Now, for Australia to talk seriously about becoming number 10 in the world as an arms trader is appalling. And in most recent times, which was part of the announcements with a, with a Lowy speech, a nuclear submarine base, uh, this is herald, heralded as somehow being an economically sound thing. It's just, just totally absurd. Now, the Ukraine issue, of course, has added fuel to this fire, but it's a fire that's been blazing for decades now in this country. Our militarisation of Australia development of the military-industrial complex, uh, the militarisation of the region that Australia has played such a significant role in at the behest of the United States is the thing that really does threaten our freedom. So that's by way of introduction, I suppose. Um, thanks, William. It's Sue here. Um, just wondering if you could expand a little bit on the last point you're making, in particular about the fact that the Australian government wants Australia to become one of the leading arms manufacturers in the world, but also the scale of recent announcements about increase in military spending in Australia and the way in, you know, obviously you've made this point already about, um, you know, I mean, the government's using the war in Ukraine to help justify that increase in spending. But if you could talk a little bit about the, um, yeah, the scale of the increase in spending and the arms dealing that the government is trying to push. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, uh, um as I say, Australia has, uh, has put billions of dollars into 
creating the wherewithal to become that um, exporter. Um, but not content with that, and that's bad enough as it is, to actually seriously consider that this is a, a good economic policy. Um, they've committed Australia to phenomenal uh, increase in military capacity. Now, this started in, in 2016 with the... Uh, uh, called the Defence White Paper. Uh, there's going to be a, a defence budget rise between 2016 and 2026, that's just 10 years, of 80%, 80% rise, which is hugely extravagant in anybody's book. Uh, we have now tipped 2% of GDP for um, arms and the military for our armament, for the army, uh, which puts us in amongst the big league. Um, Interestingly enough, it put our military spending per as GDP ahead of the UK and just in passing um, considerably more than China, although admittedly their economy is a wee bit bigger now. Their GDP spending on, on the military is 1.7%. We are now 2.1%. This um, had to be justified. To sell this to the people is not an easy task. So you sell it with threats. You fill it with uh, the problem of Chinese assertiveness. Um, now, those in positions of power you know, ignore the fact that this about our spending is just growing and growing and growing exponentially, and, and why. Uh, it doesn't matter to them that the, there is a myth that they are perpetuating because they're working on the principle always that if you control the media, you control the mind, control the minds, you can do pretty well what you like. Um, so that there are always these dangerous forces, always massing just over the horizon, and they must be uh, controlled, contained and, and fought. And it's in this context that the Australia-US alliance becomes a, a permanent, permanent fixture. Um, it's impossible to imagine that it can be broken. Just speaking but, of... Uh, just speaking of myth there, and um, this is probably the yeah. last question we have time for, um, the sort of a rules-based international order, as I guess the centre of the international right. relations system has been brought up a lot um, during Russia's invasion um, of the Ukraine. Um, how do you view this um, rules-based order? Is it actually something that's adhered to, or as we've you know arguably seen in the past few decades, something... Um, that's frequently broken, including by um, Western governments. Yeah, it is. There, yeah, there is a rules-based order, and it's US rules, okay. And it's a simple, it's a short version, but to slightly extrapolate a little bit, um, we're given this really simplistic view of the world that there are there are good guys and bad guys, fellas in the black hat, fellas in the white hat, um, and the forces of good have and not. In, I'll quote Morrison just briefly here. This rules-based international order has been built on the principles and values that guided our own nation and which has for decades supported peace and stability and allowed sovereign nations to pursue their interests free from coercion. Now, that is such an indictment of the people who, who promote the idea of a rules-based uh, order. This rules-based order that keeps us free from coercion has drenched the world in blood. Uh, the United States have 
either directly militarily or through the CIA or through buying off opposition figures, change governments, uh, altered regimes, crush people's uh, movement everywhere in the world. It is, and this concept that is so admired by the West, regardless of whatever party happens to be in power, tries and actually gets away with it at times to confect this aura that it means, but it simply means the US sets the rules and the world, if it knows what's good for it, abides by those rules. And Biden, since he came to power, has made this abundantly clear time and time again to not just his perceived enemy, but his alleged friend, Australia, as his closest ally. Uh, the United States uh, prop us up to the extent of 20% or more of all of our foreign direct investment, which a capitalist state must have. And he's made it clear that uh, it's not a good bet to bet against the US. So letting us know that if we continue any reasonable relationship with China, they can pull the plug at any moment. Uh, and as he keeps on saying, America is back and it will lead the world. Lead it where is another matter. But the rules-based order is just such uh, an act of hypocrisy. We talk about an arc of autocracy. Well, this is just so much hypocrisy. The liberal, democratic, uh, capitalist regimes of the world there to protect freedom. It's just clearly um, that's very well put, Will, and um, we might leave it there. Thanks um, again for joining us. Uh, it's much appreciated, and I'm sure we'll be speaking to you soon again. Thanks. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks, William. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks. And we've just been joined by Ella, who's taken over on do the panelling from Annie, uh, because as uh, listeners who were um, listening earlier in the program would know that um, two of our key presenters, Jacob and Chloe, are sick today, so we've had to call on the big uh, big 3CR team to come and give us a chop out by doing the panelling. Um, we're about to go into the Green Left Activist Calendar where we talk about some of the rallies and actions that are happening um, in Melbourne over the next few weeks. And one of the actions is happening this coming Saturday, um, or actually tomorrow, uh, which is Fight for Public Health and Workplace Safety. It was initiated by a group called Workers' Solidarity, but a number of other organisations are supporting the action. And it was uh, initially a response to the um, federal government's use of COVID to... Um, undermine workers' health and safety on the job. So that rally will be happening at 12 noon at the State Library on Swanson Street. Um, So that's tomorrow, March the 19th. And then the following day, on Sunday the 20th of March, there will be a rally stand for Uyghurs at 2pm at the State Library and shortly we'll be interviewing one of the activists that's involved in organising that rally. Um, And then also, very importantly, Friday next week, March the 25th, is a global strike for climate. Uh, There'll be 
protests in Melbourne and Geelong and perhaps other cities in Victoria as well as around the country and around the world. Um, so the details of the Melbourne protest is 12 noon at the Old Treasury Building Spring Street in the city, so sort of roughly beside... Uh, it's right beside Treasury Gardens and, you know, not just a few doors along from Parliament House. So I really strongly urge people to um, let everyone know about that. We need uh, a large climate protest um, so that we can stop letting Morrison and Albanese off the hook on climate change. The details of the Geelong School Strike for Climate next Friday um, is 1pm at Geelong, Tra- Geelong Town Hall. And then a couple of events that are happening in April. Uh, in one is in Geelong on the second Sunday, the second of April, calling for no gas terminal in Corio Bay. That's at 11 a.m. Little Mallop Street Mall. And then on Sunday, the 10th of April, is the annual Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees. Um, it'll be at 2 p.m. outside the State Library. We'll have more programs before then, so we can talk a little bit more about that then. But we obviously need a massive protest all across Australia for that one as well. And it is good in Melbourne to start to see people coming back out onto the streets again in defence of progressive causes. Uh, we need a lot more of a lot more of marching in the streets and. Uh, voting by marching in the streets to put um, pressure on the political establishment and um, corporate interests, etc., in in the push for our rights. We still have to free the refugees. We have to win action, serious action on climate change, as well as numerous other issues as well. Come back, come back, 
Disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga. It is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult. For these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with, and the impact will show on everything: physically, mentally, financially, and people due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situation like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate, and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe, or call the station on zero three nine four one nine eight three double seven. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Hello and welcome back t- uh, to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 um, AM. Um, a little bit earlier you heard In Between Days by George Byrne, um, but now we're moving on to our um, third and final interview of the program, and that's with um, an organiser for the Stand for Uyghurs um, rally, um, uh, Muklis Ma. Um, thanks very much for joining us, and welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Hi, Muklis. My name is Sue, and that was Leo who just introduced you as the organiser for the Stand for Uyghurs rally that's happening this Sunday at 2pm at State Library. Um, 
people have heard, uh, most people who sort of really follow politics will have heard yep. about the struggle of the Uyghurs, but I'd like you yep. to um, say a little bit about why you've organised the rally that's happening on Sunday, which I believe is a National Day of Action. Yes, it is. Um, so I'm actually from Sydney, and we've, we've also organised a rally at Town Hall in Sydney. Uh, we've got one in Adelaide and um, Brisbane. Uh, we actually originally were going to plan a rally, but because they recently had another rally previously, they decided to have a, a forum. So we, we basically decided to focus on this issue, um, number one, because of just the, the sheer scale of it. Like, we, we don't actually have exact numbers in the sense that everything uh, is estimates because, um, you know, as we know, China is very sensitive about this issue and, um, you know, we don't, we don't have any data from them or they don't even sort of admit that a lot of this is going on. But, you know, the estimates that we have are, are that things are happening in the scale of millions. And, you know, recently a, a tribunal led, led by um, Sir, Je- Sir Jeffrey Nice in, um, in the UK uh, they basically, after you know, quite a long time, uh, quite extensive proceedings, uh, declared this a genocide. So, really, that's that's the number one reason that you know we we're, we're sort of uh, focusing on this one issue because um, it's just so serious. You know, we're talking about you know, you know, many estimates are saying three million uh, Uyghurs in, in camps, like it, it numbers that are unthought unheard of, and you know. You know, once we, we, we previously had all these slogans where we said, you know, never again, and, you know, it, it brings up memories of the Holocaust and all these things, like, it really must be something that we, we push. And because China has a very strong grip on everything, there's no media highs. Uh, this is something that we need to, you know, put into, uh, you know, people's minds and, and sort of uh, push ourselves. So, yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you could maybe explain for listeners... Um a little bit about which part of China is um, the Uyghur community-based and also have Uyghurs always been oppressed within China or, like, when when did this oppression begin? Yeah, so um, the the, the Uyghurs are from uh, in in what's now called uh, Xinjiang province of of China, which is uh, the western province. It's very large. I sort of akin it to Western Australia. It's not obviously as big uh, proportionally, uh, but it's very, it, it is very big and it is very uh, resource-rich um, uh, in that, that province. And uh, basically, like, the, 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 the like Turkic people, the Uyghur people are Turkic people, so they're, they're much stronger uh, or most, more closely related to, like, Kazakhs and, and, and other people from Central Asia uh, opposed to China, like you know, they're they're very uniquely different from the you know the normal Han Chinese. And basically, what's happened is you know they've had various periods of uh, of independence and, and sort of ruling their own state. But really, from you know hundreds of years ago in the Qing Dynasty, they took over this region and they called it Xinjiang. Xinjiang meaning uh, new frontier. And uh, it, it has been under Chinese rule for, um, you know, hundreds of years, really, um, it, with various, obviously, ups and downs. And there was a, pe- a, a small period of um, uh, Uyghur independence uh, during the you know, nationalist rule in China and so forth. So there were, uh, were ups and downs. And eventually, when the Chinese Communist Party were, were, were going to take over, uh, the Uyghur people actually uh, initially quite... Um, 
uh, quite friendly and cooperative with the Communist Party because they saw that as an opportunity for themselves. They'll promise, you know, an autonomous region, which it's still called an autonomous region. Um, but, you know, when the Cultural Revolution came over, a lot of them, you know, I suppose didn't like that, that sort of approach. Uh, or, or you know suffered a lot under under you know that sort of governance, and uh, they had a, they had many ups and downs. So they really considered that they have been oppressed um, since the beginning of the Communist Party rule, and uh, a lot of that has come really because the the policies of the uh, Chinese Communist Party are really to uh, try to force integration. So they want you know the, the country to be uh, united as a whole, and one of the things that they do is they try to suppress certain cultural, religious, and other expressions, such that, um, or, or expressions that actually uh, are, are sort of against their, their principles or what they, they, they want from assimilation. So, you know, like they have a very unique culture, they have a very different language, they have their own religion, that, you know, it, it becomes very different to, to the normal Chinese rule. So, um, you know, in the last 30 years, there has been uh, quite a lot of, um, you know, uh, force from the government uh, on the, you know, the, the Uyghur people of, of East, uh, of uh, Xinjiang. And basically, it's become very, very uh, intense in the last, you know, five to eight years, where, um, you know, once Xi Jinping has come in as, as a ruler, he's uh, sort of had his own vision of things and he's been pushing it. Um, he wants to make, like, sort of this uh, issue in Xinjiang you know, one of the main things that he's been able to resolve, um, you know, alongside other things, like he's got his eyes on Taiwan. So he really wants to, to, to try to resolve this issue. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really why it's become um, more and more uh, severe. And then you add on to that a few other aspects, like um, I suppose the, the uh, Chinese basically have appropriated this war on terror and, and said, oh, look, these, uh, you know, they've taken a few small examples of, of uh, you know, some Uyghur people in Afghanistan and some that have gone to Syria and said, look, these guys are terrorists, they're, they're separatists, and, you know, that, that sort of justifies what we're doing in terms of, um, you know, all of this, and, yeah. Um, Leo, here again, um, just to take you up on that last point, that's actually exactly what I was going to um, ask you about. Um, David Brophy uh, recently published a book called China Panic that has a whole sort of chapter on Xinjiang, and one of the interesting comparisons he makes is um, the sort of security state system um, that's used to oppress Uyghurs um, in China um, and the similar sort of rhetoric that the West has um, implemented in the past few decades um, since 9-11 um, against Muslims in the West and the whole um, security apparatus there. Now, of course, um, Uyghurs are predominantly Muslim and what sort of parallels can you see between... Um, this sort of um, Islamophobia um, that the West has cultivated through the security state, and is it being sort of mimicked by China in many ways? Yeah, definitely, one hundred percent. Really, the, the the West is quite responsible for um, you know giving. Uh, actually, like initially, the, the thought that I had maybe five years ago was that this was all just like China was was just using it as an excuse. They didn't truly believe. Uh, in, in sort of uh, this war and terror, or that it was a risk. But um, actually, with, with uh, reading some of Brophy's writings and um, sort of what it appears, I believe they truly think that it's, an, uh, it's a, uh, a threat. They see, like, oh, look at these guys. They've uh, caused terrorism all over the world. Uh, they must be, you know, trying to cause it here. 
we really need to suppress them. And it, it seems like, you know, the, the upper government, um, you know, upper levels of the Communist Party truly believe it because they've gone to these extremes. Like, it's not like a, a small expense or a small amount of effort they're putting in. They're going to, they're going all out, you know, so. Well, yeah. thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for um, doing the interview with us, Mukhlis. Um That's probably all we've got um, time for today. But I'd certainly encourage people to check out the um, website and Facebook page, Stand for Uyghurs, um, and which has got all the details of the demonstrations around the country. Is there anything you, else you'd like to say about the details of the protests, Mukhlis? Um, no, just that I'd encourage people to to, uh, to come down and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really, really important cause. Like, I see this as, you know, one of these causes where it's like the world is, is, is sleeping with respect to this and it's going to be one of those moments that we look back in power and be like, we allowed this to happen, you know? Yes, um, yeah. you're absolutely right. Um, there are too many um, genocides, really, which happen without without an outcry. So thanks very much for coming on the program today, Mukhlis. You're welcome. Thanks so much for hosting me. Thanks very much. So we've got 10 minutes to go in the program. I was thinking that maybe we should chat about um, another issue, which is um, also uh, there's an article in Green Left, and it's one of the left groups in Ukraine, um, called social, well, the translation into English is social movement. And they're campaigning to um, cancel Ukraine's foreign debt. And they're actually, um, this is a group which is against um, the Russian oligarchs and also against Ukrainian oligarchs as well, uh, because they don't want either oligarchs of either Russian or Ukrainian variety to profit out of this war. And they're talking about the immense burden that the foreign debt um, is causing in Ukraine. And they're really worried that what's going to happen as a result of the war, as a result of the weapons being sent to Ukraine for the war, etc., that what this is going to have, the impact of this will be um, a massive increase in the Ukrainian foreign debt and that that will come out of social services and services for ordinary Ukrainian people. Um, it's a huge debt um, and one of the um, social movement spokespersons, Vitaly Dudin, told Green Left, there's an interview with him in Green Left of the current issue, um, he said that the external debt is unfair and extensive and has been so for a long time and has been a significant contributing factor to poverty and deteriorating standards of living in Ukraine. And, you know, Ukraine would have that in common with um, most of Africa and most of Latin America, where the um, foreign debt has been used by imperialist countries to keep people economically enslaved, even if not um, enslaved in the normal means of the term. And uh, some of the, a lot of this external debt um, that Ukraine owes is a result of um, also the war in 2014 
between Russia and Ukraine and has become unbearable. Um, they say that about um, close to $6.2 billion of, is spent um, servicing this debt in 2022 alone. This year, about 12% of the state's budget is going to service this debt, and this money really needs to be spent on rebuilding the country, providing the citizens urgent needs, etc., um, this is just truly, um, truly outrageous. And it's something which it's interesting that amongst sanctions against Russia, military weapons being sent to Ukraine, it's interesting not a single Western nation has uh, mentioned anything about the Ukrainian debt. Mm. Yeah, it is very interesting. And as um, Federica Fuentes puts very aptly in that article, the best way to help the Ukrainian people um, ultimately is not necessarily sanctions on Russia, um, you know, justifiable as those might be, but it is actually to remove this sovereign debt because um, it does play a big role on the living standards of ordinary Ukrainians. And like you mentioned, um, all over um, sort of post-communist states um, in the Soviet Union, but also in the former Yugoslavia, a lot of these oligarchs prospered with, um, you know, these big privatization programs we saw with Boris Yeltsin in Russia, Leonid Kutcher um, in Ukraine. And these people that um, you, uh, the West is now sanctioning in Russia um, are the product of these sort of extreme pro-market um, uh, policies. And what's interesting about the Ukraine debt issue in particular is that it underlines the very sort of hypocritical and um, two-faced approach of the West in supporting Ukraine um, in this way because... Um, on the one hand, you know, the rhetoric has very been, has been very pro-Ukraine both NATO and the EU. But when it comes to these concrete, um, economic measures, the support hasn't been there. And this has been a situation that we've seen paralleled, um, with a lot of, um, Central and Eastern European states when it comes to Euro-Atlantic integration. You know, there's this promise of the EU, of NATO, um, bringing prosperity, but it's often very, um, very one um, directional, you know. It's the, the, this promise of Europe as this sort of um, savior, but um, ultimately, um, what we see time and time again, as we're seeing with Ukraine, um, you know, who even isn't an EU or a NATO member, um, there's this um, lack of support, and um, when um, you know, things get really problematic, as we saw with Greece. Western European states are more than happy to serve their own sort of economic and geopolitical interests um, while still rhetorically supporting, you know, these notions of liberal democracy for the East. Yes, and just an extra point um, from this interview with Vitaly Dudin from this left-wing organisation, Social Movement, he says that um, in cancelling the debt, it's absolutely critical, but it's also not enough. So he's saying that what we also need is the confiscation of the wealth of Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs and for that wealth to be channelled into supplying food, health care and reconstruction. Because as well as the uh, Russian oligarchs um, who've been talked about in the media as playing terrible role of oppression and exploitation of the environment and people, the Ukrainian oligarchy is also uh, also should pay the price for its exploitation of Ukraine's natural resources and people, which has weakened the state and undermined their sovereignty as well. 
So that was a really good statement from social mm, movement. Definitely. And there's been a lot of those um, good statements from both um, sort of anti-war activists and, you know, quite sort of progressive activists here in Ukraine and also a lot of anti-war protesters um, in Russia as well. So that's certainly two sort of sets of voices will continue um, to platform in Green Left. Now, I'm not sure if we've got time to say anything more about nuclear weapons or if at uh, 8.28, if we should start to say our goodbyes and uh, play a station announcement. Uh, advice from the panel <laughs> from Ella. Yeah, we've got two minutes left, so perhaps we should wrap up and get into some station announcements. Sorry. Okay, no worries. Well, thanks everyone for um, listening to Green Left Radio this morning. It's been really great. And yeah, thanks in particular to uh, 3CR who have helped us along because of COVID absences. Both Annie and Ella um, will be back here next week at our usual sort of slot at 7 a.m. on um, 3CR. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back, reds underneath your